AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey Matt, I heard that you have a story about crypto mining malware recently. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so this one's pretty interesting. This company called Texthelp makes assistive technologies for the web. So assistive technologies for people who have like, you know, problems, you know, reading, they have like an eyesight uh -huh. problem. One of their, their tools is called Browse Aloud. Okay. And it's something you can add into your website as code to allow to read it to the, the user mm -hmm. you know, if they can't actually view it. And it turns out that their site got compromised and the code that everyone else was importing to their site was also modified mm -hmm. to include the CoinHive miner, which Ganesh is definitely familiar with. Yeah. And this affected about 4,000 sites, which were all customers of this software. The story is about one of these text help software, which, which has been used by various industries has been compromised. Compromised in the sense the software has been modified a little bit to in order to mine the crypto mining. We've spoken a lot about crypto mining malware, but I think what is interesting about this one is it's really using this third-party site to infect and make a big impact on a large number of sites. Some sites, every single page had this code in, implanted into it. Yeah. Anybody who visited was mining crypto in their, their browsers. So this is a third party that was affected, mm -hmm. which in turn affected this large number of sites, 4,000, right? That's Over 4,000, yeah. yep. And that includes some, some pretty prominent sites mm -hmm. in the U.S in the UK, some having to do with healthcare, mm -hmm. and basically anybody who has a requirement to, to provide assistive technologies on their site might have chosen this as a way to do that. The attack itself is similar to other attacks that we've seen. I mean, the whole idea of trusting the software supply chain is, is sort of old at this point. Scott Helm, who is a very well-known security researcher, mm -hmm. found this out. It's since been taken down, so anybody who had it implanted in their site, they're no longer infected, mm -hmm. they're also no longer have that, that code running, yeah. but it's good that it's been found and it's been taken care of. But the bigger question here is, if you want to use something like this in your website and load it from somebody else's site, there are ways you can do that. Mm -hmm. But what's the safest way of doing it in the chance that it might not be the code that it was yesterday? Someone may have modified it and added something extra to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there are ways to do that. There's a technology called SRI, okay. which uh, Scott actually mentions in his blog post, which allows you to add something to the the code that you're the code that you use to import that code, mm -hmm. and says this is where it is, but also this is what the SHA hash of it mm. should be. So when the browser loads it, then they can check against it and say, well, it doesn't it doesn't match anymore. Therefore, I'm not going to load the code. Yeah. There's also CSP, which is a content security policy, which you can also use. Uh, to limit the ways in which external code can be used on your site. Mm -hmm. So the, the general message is that this is a problem that developers should take into account. I don't really think it's a, a user problem so much, but if developers can add these technologies anytime they import somebody else's code, because then, in this case, end users is unwitting, you know, participants. They do not know what's right. happening. Right, and I mean, what could the user possibly do? Is is keep an eye on their, yeah. you know, the resources running in their on their machine and say, oh, look, Firefox is running yeah. at 100% of memory now. I wonder what that's about. Yeah. 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 But they're probably not going to do that. You really don't think that, you know, something that you've been using for a while is going to get compromised. It's sort of business as usual. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it would be good today to go back and take a look at it from a third-party risk view, right? So these are code that you're importing. You have to check the integrity of that code. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the person that's providing it to you also will check, but it's also on yourself when you're actually using and importing this code as a web developer to make sure that 
go back and check it. Sure, sure. That that's a good way. Is a way of minimizing risk is yeah. actually if you don't have to load the code from somewhere else, if you can load it from your own site, yeah. that takes this attack completely off the table. Yeah. So. So does the techniques you talked about, like SRA and the CSP, does the browsers needs to support them, or is it kind of you know is it inbuilt already? What are the takes the, on the 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 browser does have to support them. So I'm pretty sure. Okay. SRI is supported by. Firefox and Chrome, and I'm mm -hmm. not sure it's supported by Edge yet. Okay. CSP, I believe, is supported by all of them. And I hate to say that they're new web technologies, but adoption really mm -hmm. hasn't been that great yet. Mm -hmm. I think it's these sorts of stories that'll help push them, because once the techniques are known, once the attacks are out in the open, you can say, okay, well, now that I have a, a story to point to to say, this is a problem. This is it's a not problem. abstract anymore. Yes, yes. This is the reason we should be doing this. Yeah. I think we'll see more I adoption agree. of yeah, technologies. The only way it can be avoided is uh, by making you know regular frequent audits to the software code. That may help it a little bit. You don't want to actually, uh, you know, just blindly just import codes because any third party's code that you're importing could be affected and which in turn can make you an affected party. Ganesh, you've been doing a lot of research on this Gen X malware. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, actually, it's another day, another week, another IoT botnet. Sure. In this case, it's called a Gen X botnet. It kind of leverages two exploits related to real tech as well as Hawaii routers. IoT, DDoS botnets have been in the topic for a while. We've seen Mirai. I think this one is basically taking existing uh, vulnerabilities, such as the Satori, and improvising on it, and making sure that it's sneaky and not noisy, and you cannot easily detect it. The interesting thing about GenX is uh, basically this is hosted at some place where actually a gaming-related uh, activity is supported. Like, okay. for example, multi-layer gaming. Yeah. In this case, San Andreas, Grand Theft Auto, multi-player multi programming actually support is done by this specific server farm. The same actors actually, they are also offering, you know, DDoS protections to your uh, GTA servers. So they're selling both sides of that fence. They're yes. selling the DDoS and they're selling the... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Are, are they selling DDoS or are they just using their botnet? Actually, as a... that's where I'm going. Okay. Actually, that's one part of it. Another product, the service they have is uh, they're offering DDoS services attacks up to 300 gigabits per second. That's just for $20. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so if that's. If they really have 300 gigabits per second, they're they're undercharging because <laughs> that's that's very cheap. And that's, that's a heck of an uh, attack. Deal, too. all right. And I think that's why people will want to. I mean, on one side of the coin, they're offering the you know, protection for their you know, yeah. gaming uh, customers. Uh -huh. On the other side, they're providing the, you know, basically DDoS attacks to give the users to maybe probably unfair advantage. You know, if you're gaming, you know, you sure. want to take down your opponents. Yeah, you take them offline. You yeah, just you take them offline. Yeah. And the $20 for 300 gigabits, yeah. it's uh, very tempting for a, you know, an online gamer to, you know, probably Correct. fell into the trap. The connection between DDoS and gaming has been around for, well, as long as internet gaming has been around. The whole idea of somebody who's running both sides of it is not unheard of, but certainly not very common. On the x-axis, we have the timeline. And on the y-axis, actually, number of unique sources per hour. Mm -hmm. Basically, how many scanners we are seeing per hour. As you can see, I think uh, here we are showing a 30 days worth of data here. Uh, the ports are uh, 52869 as well as 37215TCP. We've shown in the graphically how these two ports worked in tandem, how at what point actually we are seeing the spike. This botnet came around around this time. As you see the little blip here, I think 
at the start of February. So, okay. so wait, the spike that we're seeing here, this is not, as far as we know, Gen X? Gen X is Gen X actually just started that blip? Just, just that blip. Huh. Okay. Uh, but uh, when we were looking back past 30 days, actually you see somewhere in the first week, January, there's a huge spike on these two activities. If we go back, I think, Matt, you probably remember, this is the timeline, actually, Satori source code has been leaked. Mm, yeah. Okay. So once it's been leaked, you know, people are actually trying to, you know, look for those uh, sure. ports, you know. Yeah. Everybody wants to take the share of it. Uh, with respect to what we found is uh, the geographic distribution of the scanners used by this botnet at this point is heavily concentrated in Asia Pack. In this case, we see most of them are Asia Pack. Yeah, looks okay. like the gaming world there is pretty prevalent. South Korea, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, Matt is uh, right on the money. It's a South Korea, mm -hmm. and maybe follow a little bit of China. Okay. This is the initial set when we saw Gen X in the first week of February. Okay. There are about uh, 400 scanners at this time, and uh, I have another interesting graph, taking it further. This is uh, almost new. It's uh, it's from the last weekend, maybe I think last Saturday. Interesting. This is on another port, 52869. Mm. Compared to Realtek and Hawaii, actually, the Hawaii port is actually more active compared to this 52869 sources I'm showing it here. Mm -hmm. But since the past few days, actually, the traffic on 52869 TCP has exploded. It's for the port 52869 I was uh, talking it. So your first graph showed up to like uh, the, the 5th of February, or just beyond that, but here's the... The continuation Here. of that same graph? A continuation of the same graph, but I want to show you, you know, the level of actual scanning increased on 52869. Yeah, significantly. So it kind of you know, went hand in hand until up to this point. I think it's the start of last weekend. And suddenly it went up and, I mean, kind of it's uh, stabilizing a little bit there. But you can see here, at one point almost it reached, you know, so 14. And now I around actually, I think, 5,000 source scanners wow. per hour. Wow. And that's just for the 52869 bug. 5, it doesn't 8, seem 6. like there's any significant change. Uh, not in much, not much on 37215. It's interesting to see this pattern, right? So because we are tracking data and you've been monitoring it, again, going back to you know, Matt's point, we're able to see the scale, how it's changing. Right? Yes. So maybe I should ask you, does Gen X have code once you've infected a machine, does that machine also start scanning, or is it purely a DDoS bot at that point? No, it can it can start scanning. Okay. Uh, but the controller has the capability. I think um, it can decide whether it can be part of the DDoS or not. All That's right. so. I think uh, you leverage a 300 gigabits per mm. second. I wonder if the people who are their customers would even know the difference between a 300 gigabit per second DDoS attack and like a five gigabit per second DDoS attack. Uh, I, I don't. Because if you take somebody off a residential connection, mm. five is, may do it just as well as 300. Yeah, I mean maybe you can just do the um, amplification attack at one of the protocols they use for the gaming. Mm -hmm. And the average user doesn't even know whether what's the size of the attack Correct. like you pointed out. Yeah. Yeah, but it is interesting to see that they're actually selling things like DDoS to a gaming world. Oh. So eventually the awareness is going to pick up, right? They may not know the bandwidth, you know, scale, but the fact that we are going to see more and more of the IoT type attacks increase. And because those are the devices that really nobody's thinking about in terms yeah. of, you know, a security view. I think the cool thing about this one, I mean, from the design perspective, but not the malware, yeah. maliciousness perspective, they actually heavily borrow, you know, how the Setor and the Mirai works. Mm -hmm. The best thing that people can do is really to make sure that their devices are up to date. 
Unfortunately, some devices will never get patched, and that's not necessarily the fault of the user, that maybe just the company has decided to end of life certain hardware. When you're making a decision to purchase any IoT device, just pay attention to the reputation of the vendor or the seller. Human tendency to go and grab the cheapest one, but the thing is, uh, those cheapest devices may not have the security posters built into it, and they may not have the longevity, and the vendor may not support you in the additional patches to make it you know, more secure. The consideration should be given how a user can actually update the patches by themselves, because most of the devices doesn't have interface. So either you have to go through some web page, maybe some other means, to go to the admin page and do the update the actually the patches, maybe update the credentials. Bindu, it sounds like you've got some uh, information on a new point of sale malware that uses UDP for communication. Yes, Matt. So this is interesting because it's been a while since we've heard about point of sale malware. Point of sale is one of the attractive targets for you know a lot of uh, malware related uh, breaches that we've seen. Mm -hmm. But this one is actually using LogMeIn, which is a legitimate you know remote control of Windows machines type software. And uh, what it's doing is it's having you click as a legitimate update, and then once you click on that link that has this LogMeIn update, it basically will let you download the malware. And as as any typical POS malware, it tries to scrape the credit card data information and try to send the data via UDP DNS traffic. If you were looking at your DNS logs, these would stand out. If you were to look at these DNS queries, you would see that they look rather funny. They're very long. Um, they've got encoded data inside of them. So usually point-of-sale malware is all about HTTP that we've seen so far. So because it is DNS traffic related, it's not usually monitored as well as the HTTP traffic is. So we want to make sure that you know customers that are using slightly outdated point-of-sale you know, systems and they're not really looking for this type of a malware out there, just to be aware that this could potentially have an impact. So how is the malware spread? A number of point-of-sale systems are managed at the back end using Windows XP machines. Mm -hmm. A lot of them still have not been updated, and we've seen that with the whole WannaCry and Petya, how mm -hmm. much of these Windows machines have been impacted. So these unpatched systems, and then you have a user that uses the LogMeIn software, they click on the link, which is a phishing email attempt, and once they click, it'll spread through the system. Interesting. Well, that's the thing about point-of-sale machines that I still find curious is that People will actually go to them to read their email, to do other web yes. tasks like it's yes. a regular machine. As computers go, they're really single-purpose machines. Mm -hmm. They just happen to be built on a, a general-purpose architecture and, and operating it's a, system. It's also fascinating Windows XP machines are that not fast nowadays, you know? <laughs> I mean, they should really be yeah. end of life, but I realize there's a cost to a lot of businesses who just don't yeah. want to do that. And oh, plus, wow. Bindu, you also pointed out it's not really a legitimate log me in. It's a lookalike uh, log yes. me in. And I log think, me in is very popular. <laughs> I mean, uh, even the name is log me in, but it has additional characters to yes. the software. Yes. That's a right away giveaway, you know, it's yeah. not the right one we're looking at. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, for folks using point-of-sale machines, they mm -hmm. are not security savvy typically, right? So for yeah. them, it's a functional use. Point-of-sale users, like the actual people who interface with yeah. it, are servers in a restaurant or, mm -hmm. or cashiers in a store yep. who aren't technically savvy. Uh, and they do usually use like a third party to manage it. Correct. So someone else will remote in, which is probably why the LogMeIn fish works yeah. so well. Yeah. That, that may very well be the way they get into those boxes mm -hmm. to manage them. The payload is very minimal. I think about 88 bytes, yes. right? Yes. So it's a little stealthy. I mean, it's a 
too little for a UDP traffic packet, I believe, you know. Those 88 bytes could be something related to a specific field mm -hmm. in the yeah. POS data, you know, Correct. the scraping it's of some data. It's basically the magnetic stripe data probably, right? Yeah. That's really what you're using to steal that information. Yeah. In general, point of sales machines, even though they're built off of regular like stock PCs typically, don't treat them as such. Remember that they're computers, but limit the functionality they have so that all you can do is use them for point of sale, and then also if you have a remote admin function, support that as well. But don't allow people to use them for web browsing or gaming or online chat or anything like that. And as always, uh, even those POS systems are uh, computer systems and they need updates too. And try to have up-to-date software with respect to the applications as well as the operating systems to minimize the risk of this kind of POS scrapping. It is having that mindset that, you know, when you are clicking on emails and we, when you are actually downloading things as executables onto your machine, watch out. Also, the other thing is don't use outdated machines. So I think it goes back to focusing on those foundational, you know, security, day-to-day -day things that you have to maintain versus just only looking at cutting-edge technology and tools. Hey Matt, I think uh, you have a very interesting book review based on uh, security metrics. Do you would like to share some thoughts on it? Yeah, sure. I'm trying to read a security book a month. My New Year's resolution that I fully intend to keep is to read one technical book a month. And whether that's a security book or just a technical topic I've really wanted to cover, I'm going to try and make it through. So the first one for this year is Security Metrics by Andrew Jackwith. It's actually a, a rather old book in terms of uh, technology books. Technology books have a very short half-life. Yeah, but, but it's still one, relevant. This one is still relevant, yeah. absolutely. The subtitle, Replacing Fear, Uncertainty, and Doubt, I think is a great subtitle, basically because we all work in security. We all recognize that a certain amount of, of FUD is thrown around, but I think the best way to combat that is with hard numbers. Yes. You know, actual yeah. security metrics. The start of the book describes what a good metric is, and basically a good metric is something that is clear, mm -hmm. It's expressed in numbers, cardinal mm -hmm. numbers, and not in like a range of like high, medium, low. A Got metric it. is like a number, like 22 infections today. So quantitative and measurable. Exactly. Yeah. And clear. I guess it should be repeatable. Absolutely. And okay. repeatable. Okay. So the method by which you obtain them, you know, someone else should be able to do it. If I describe it, they should be able to handle it. As we all look at presentations and listen to briefings, we hear a lot of industry stats and we hear a lot of breach stats. But then how do we actually measure security? We have to be realistic about it. It has to be quantitative. It risk cannot be a qualitative measure alone. Like we cannot be subjective about a risk. Metrics generation can be somebody's full time job if they're doing it manually. And you don't really mm. want to dedicate a full analyst to doing it. It's also tedious. Mm -hmm. um, and, but if you've got a human being in the loop, it's also subjective to bias, it's also subjective. Yeah. So the more that you can turn it into an automated collection process, right. the better. We want it to be scalable, right? So you cannot have you know analysts sitting and doing this, especially with the way networks are evolving. You mm -hmm. really cannot have somebody manually collecting all of this. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Imagine trying to collect metrics for like a cloud deployment yeah. of a bunch of machines that may only last for a couple of minutes each. Yeah. They talk about ways to express those numbers in meaningful ways, to condense raw logs mm -hmm. or you know other other measurements into summary data mm -hmm. and i thought it was very interesting they started talking about averages now if you know any school kid knows how to calculate the average of something and people generally will think well averages that that should be a perfectly acceptable way of expressing security metric data right mm -hmm. but they make a very good case for using other things like mean like every month 
maybe we have 10 or maybe the, the mean is somewhere around you know, another number, but it also allows for the expression of more nuanced data, hmm. things like outliers, yeah. which uh, an average completely destroys. You know, if, you, if it's 10 a month, well, it doesn't tell you that last month we got 100 and then this month we have, you know, two. Flip around the actual, the mean numbers, the average you're talking about in the context of security network monitoring, mm -hmm. uh, outliers are the key for us. Yes, absolutely. So we should really have to look into the outliers rather than the average numbers. Sure. And they talk about, about baselining your network to yeah. understand what normal is mm -hmm. so that when you do have numbers that stand out like that, yeah. you know what they are and then you can go and, and uh, investigate them. Absolutely. They make a good point that the collection of security metrics is really about mm. expressing risk higher up the chain. So at an analyst level, you may be very interested to know that there are this many infections of this type and this many of this type, but Ultimately, you're collecting this information to help justify a decision that somebody Correct. else is going to make to change your security posture in some way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Either that's going to be hiring new analysts, it's going to be buying new technology, it's going to be adjusting a policy that you've got, yeah. but you have to be able to express it up the chain to somebody who doesn't have the technical level of, of detail that you deal with every day. Correct. So. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting because we talk a lot about making security investments. So how do you make a justified security investment? You mm -hmm. have to tie it back to risk. And how yep. do you tie it back to risk? Honestly, it cannot be high, medium, low. It has to be a quantitative number that is supporting, you know, that risk metric. Absolutely. Right? So the, these types of, you know, books and conversations that we have really supports that big picture in terms of the C-level having to make a decision mm -hmm. on justified security investments, but the security team also exactly knowing why they made the decision to go with this technology versus that, or, you know, people hire versus a tool acquisition. I think it goes back to saying, hey, we all need to be able to have measurable data that we can provide as we are doing our security jobs. I agree. I, I thought it was a really good book. Yeah, There are certain parts of it, certain frameworks they tried to describe that I don't deal with on uh -huh. a day-to-day -day basis. I'm sure that if I were to hand this book to people up my chain, they might be familiar with them and get more have a more appreciation for what's being discussed in those chapters. Mm -hmm. But the sections about collecting metrics, the lists of example metrics, things I wouldn't have thought of to collect mm -hmm. are really great. And I would still recommend it, even though this, I think it was written in 2007. Wow. It's still solid. I think this is a good book to start with, especially if you're in the world of sort of talking to your board about, you know, what security investments you're making, how did you align it to a risk profile, what is it that you're measuring in terms of security. And it actually will mean something to those executives when you can justify those decisions being made. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.